Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests will discuss relevant health-related topics, and we'll do so from an authentically Catholic perspective. And today, that's with our guest, Chris Stroud, who will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Now, we have a special treat for you today. If you have ever seen those photo competitions titled, Why Women Live Longer Than Men, today you are going to be privy to an audio version. Now, now Andrew, <laughs> describe what some of those pictures look like in, in that competition. You know, it's usually people uh, in the Upper Peninsula of Min- Michigan <laughs> uh, standing on a metal ladder over a swimming pool in the bucket of a tractor working on electrical wires. Exactly. And, That's uh, why women live longer than men in the yeah. Upper Peninsula of Michigan. That is my stomping grounds. But today you get an audio version version. Why? Because we here at Dr. Doctor are boldly rushing in where angels fear to tread, probably because they know better. In Mm. other words, where else can you hear three grown men talking about the subject of the menstrual cycle. You know, I think it's it's just a shame that our guest couldn't make it, and we had to have a fill-in guest at the last minute. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you filling in for, Dr. Right. Stroud? Anyone. Anyone, anyone else. <laughs> anyone else. Well, this all came to be because we actually have a fan. A listener from Washington State said, I got my mom hooked on your podcast, and she says, you guys always sound so happy. I think we're faking it well, huh, guys? Well, anyway, she passed along a suggestion from her mom for a topic. So, says she's been struggling with infertility for a long time, and mom recently took her to the Pope Paul VI Institute in Omaha, where Chris has spent some time. That's right. She was there for a week. She underwent testing and diagnostic work, which confirmed endometriosis. She's intrigued by the mysterious disease called endometriosis and suggested that you do a show on it. Well, instead of just doing a show on endometriosis, we thought we would do it in the context of the menstrual cycle because Stephanie said, you haven't yet done an episode on women's health or female-related diseases. So, Stephanie, we have heard your cry. And in the words of Ramses II, if any of you watched the Ten Commandments with Charlton <laughs> Heston's, so let it be written, so let it be done. And here we are with Chris Stroud, who's now going to tell us how in the world did Chris, did Chris, did God and your life experiences prepare you to be an expert on this topic of the menstrual cycle. Well, I would say both of those parties, life experiences and God, have ill-prepared me for this topic. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, I've spent the last 25 and a half years uh, studying menses, and I'm honored to get to travel around and talk about reproductive things a lot. And I like to start by saying, because I'm usually talking to a room full of women. <laughs> and I usually <laughs> Better like to, you than me. <laughs> I like to start by saying, just because you have menses does not make you an expert on them. Um, that doesn't always win me affection. <laughs> though, um, though true it is. But, but it is very true. So uh, why, why menstrual cycle? Why not womenstrual cycle? I, I have no idea. You know, <laughs> when my children ask a question like that time, I just say, because. Now shut up and move on. <laughs> well, so I looked it up. And it actually traces back again to the Proto-Indo-European, which is a, a root for men or man, meaning month. So menstrual comes from a root word meaning monthly. So it's something that happens monthly. That's all it means. And and menopause, which again I thought should be womenopause, comes from the the same root. That means a pause in the monthly thing. So it's the end to the monthly thing. That's all menopause is. Not not very... Appropriately labeled. Yes. Fulfilling. So so I guess kind of as we start things off, one of the things, Chris, maybe you could just... Give us a bit of a definition. What exactly is cycling? How does the body know when to cycle and start over again? What's the basics? Yeah, it probably doesn't come as a surprise. I think this is a fascinating topic in question. Um, But what's cycling literally is the woman's fertility. And I think until I started spending so much time in fertility, we don't necessarily talk about the menstrual cycle and fertility as though they were interchangeable, but they are. Sure. What, what's cycling is the woman's fertile window, and she's only fertile about five days a month, and that cycles month after month after month, uh, or not necessarily month exactly in the calendar way, but period of time after period of time, she's becoming fertile and then infertile, and then fertile and then infertile, thus creating a cycle. So what's an average length for a, a menstrual cycle? You know, 
a better, I think a more fascinating way to answer that is what percentage of women in America have 28-day cycles where they ovulate on day 14? No, 5%. Yeah, it's very low, right around 5%. And that shocks most people when they hear that because they think everyone has 28-day cycles. But in reality, if you carve out all of the women on artificial contraception, not many actually have 28-day cycles. Well, and, and that's why I think it's so frustrating for many people who practice or NFP and who are interested in, in things like NAPRO technology when people refer to it as the calendar or the rhythm method. Right. This is so much above and beyond that, right? Oh, absolutely. That's what our ancestors called Vatican roulette. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is not modern natural family planning by any stretch of the so, imagination. So how does the body know, the women's body anyway, know to go through this cyclic process? Yeah, it is amazing. It all starts like everything in the brain. You know, it starts in a part of the brain called the hypothalamus. We've talked about it with mm -hmm. other guests. And the hypothalamus sends a signal to the pituitary gland. The pituitary gland sends out some signals. These signals are sent in the form of hormones. And those hormones act on the ovaries. And that awakens an immature follicle or egg, you might say, in the woman's ovary. And that begins a new cycle. I mean, isn't it true that a woman is born with every egg she'll ever have? A fixed number. You know, the three of us, we make our version of eggs until we're dead. Right. Maybe even after. <laughs> um, but but women, are, <laughs> women are born with a fixed number of eggs. And every time they ovulate or use one of those eggs, it's a currency. When they spend their last egg, that's called, as you referenced, menopause. That's the end, when they spent that last egg. So uh, most people would say estrogen comes comes from the ovary, what we should say is estrogen comes from a growing follicle within the ovary on the way to ovulation. Ah, so it doesn't come from the whole ovary, just a very small part just of it. Just a growing follicle, that's and right. And when there's no more eggs? There's, there's no more estrogen. No more estrogen. Amen. Ah, and that's a whole nother topic we're not going to cover because... So, you know, it might be helpful if we just walk through quickly the menstrual cycle. Exactly. And our listeners will be experts. Uh, if you get this, you get more than 99% of practicing physicians, present company excluded. Well, go for it, Chris. So the beginning of the cycle. Uh, the beginning is actually as the bleeding stops. That's sort of a Sunday versus Monday, the first day of the week. But as the bleeding stops, the pituitary gland starts releasing FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone. It wakes up a follicle. A follicle begins to grow inside the ovary. And that's just a group of cells surrounding an immature egg. That's correct. Okay. Yeah, a follicle, I like to say, is a Not cyst. a hair follicle. Yeah. <laughs> it's a cyst with an egg in it. Very good. And it's microscopic, and it begins to grow. And it grows rapidly under the influence of FSH. And as it grows, it makes estrogen. Estrogen makes the lining of the uterus grow. That's called the endometrium. Ah, it gets remember thick. this for endometriosis exactly. later. Yeah, it gets thick like a carpet or like a lawn. Uh, that follicle gets to be about two centimeters in diameter. Wow, from microscopic to, to that. two centimeters. Almost easily seen with the naked eye. Yes. Uh, and then another hormone is released, luteinizing hormone, or LH. That causes the follicle to mature quickly and to explode, quite literally. Uh, ovulation, really, is a ruptured ovarian cyst. Oh. It explodes, and the little egg pops out. It goes into the end of the fallopian tube. There's sperm waiting there sometimes, like little ninja warriors. And that's where <laughs> fertilization happens, right, in the end of the tube. The thing that blew up then becomes a new structure. And as far as I can tell, I could be wrong, this is the only example in human physiology where one structure changes into a different structure and has a completely different function. But the follicle blows up, and then the, what's left of the architecture forms what's called the corpus luteum. Which is Latin for? Yellow body. That's all. And yeah. it, it, you can see it. It's yellow in the ovary. You've seen it. Um, and that's where the money is. It makes progesterone. Progesterone doesn't make the lining of the uterus grow. It, it effectively freezes it in time. It's like pressing pause on a movie. And the word progesterone means pro for gesterone, gestation. So it's for gestation. Exactly. For. It's, it's getting the lining stable and ready. Um, and it does that for about 11 to 17 more days. It's During which time? It's waiting on a signal. And that signal is pregnancy. If pregnancy doesn't happen, the corpus luteum dies progesterone production goes to nothing rapidly, and that sudden drop is the signal that tells the uterus, we're not pregnant, slough off this lining, and we'll cycle back and do it all again. So it's the loss of progesterone that was keeping that carpet in place right. that re releases the blood. Okay. And interestingly, 
every menstrual cycle happens because a pregnancy didn't. Ah, if you think about it, that's pretty to... strange. That's how important pregnancy is. Um, and if you look at some of our, you know, our friends on the planet, other mammals, most of them are not as fertile as, as we humans. You know, so take deer, for instance. There is this popular hunting season called the rut. The one time a year a female deer is fertile and receptive, as opposed to human women are fertile uh, roughly every calendar month. And what's pretty interesting. It is. Now, w- women often have pain or discomfort when they're bleeding. Do they have any symptoms during the cycle when they're not bleeding that happen monthly? Yeah, there's a there's a famous pain called middle schmertz pain. Yeah, should put that on our that should be on our trivia question. Oh, I love that word. <laughs> the but German. That's, that's painful ovulation. Some women can say, "Oh yeah, Thursday afternoon, two thirty, left side, I ovulated." Pop the egg. Uh, wow. Not all women can sense that, but some women really can. That's amazing. There's also uh, pretty common uh, symptoms or symptom complexes from the time of ovulation until the next period starts. That period is called a premenstrual period, and sometimes that's called premenstrual syndrome. P-M-S. <laughs> exactly. Got it. And those symptoms are related to progesterone going low, uh, and we sometimes treat those symptoms by giving progesterone. Uh, part of NAPRO technology, which is one of the early episodes of Dr. Yeah. Doctor we did with our expert in-house, Chris Stroud. But that's a menstrual cycle. You get that. You are an expert on the that menstrual cycle. That was beautifully done. <laughs> Before we go to our break, we have a trivia question. Ooh. So menopause is the name given to the cessation of menses in women. Men don't have monthly cycles, but strangely enough, a 2015 survey of British men, 25% of them thought that men did. I don't know what they're doing in Britain that we aren't here, but keep it over there. Anyway, men don't have a stark physical change in their lives like women do with menopause. However, men do have gradual age-related hormone changes that can lead to symptoms. What word that rhymes with menopause has been used to describe these changes in men. We'll be back with more on the beauty of a woman's cycle here on Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio after the break. And we're back with Dr. Doctor talking to our very own Dr. Chris Stroud about the menstrual cycle, everything we need to know. And uh, Chris, one of the things that I, I run into a lot, especially working in family medicine, is parents wanting to know, believe it or not, someone asked me to give the talk to their children. <laughs> um, and they, they said, we, we can come in for a couple appointments if we need to. But how to talk to young children, especially young ladies, about their menstrual cycle and what to expect. Yeah, I think that's a great topic. And, you know, the three of us men sitting here are all fathers of daughters. Um, and it, it's a critical topic. And I personally think a lot of parents accidentally um, treat this incorrectly. Um, a, a young girl becoming of age, so to speak, from a menstrual standpoint, it ought to be celebrated. You know, it's it's wonderful. It's it's her body maturing. She's literally becoming a woman. And I've heard parents talk about buying a special menstrual dress. Your period started, so you go and buy, you know, a really fancy dress to celebrate. Or you do a gift, or you do a big dinner out with, uh, you know, with your parents. Because it, it represents one of those uh, penultimate moments in a young woman's life. And the way she interprets that, uh, or at least the way her parents help her interpret that, could have a lot to do with how she interprets menses for the rest of her reproductive years. You know, uh, my wonderful bride is uh, is the sister of brothers, and she always said, I could never complain about my periods. My brothers would have beat it out of me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, a family culture around wow. menses is really important. And so it needs to be held up as something that's beautiful and good uh, and should be revered. It's one of the things that makes a young woman so much different from us sitting here in this studio, and that's something to celebrate. So don't talk badly about it. Be excited about it. Uh, explain how beautiful it is and how wonderful it is and what this means that someday when you meet Mr. Wright and you're married, you can have a child because this is happening. Um, and that's a great way to start talking about a lot of important things. See, I think that's a great way to attack it because so often I hear about folks, whenever the, the young lady first has menses, there's pain associated. Yeah. Oh. It's usually irregular. Immediately, they're rushed off to an OB. And the, the natural thing that happens is they get put on birth control because wink, wink, the, they don't want teen pregnancy. Right. And so blame it on irregular menses or blame it on pain or what have you. So many of these young ladies get put on birth control 
we know all the, the negative effects of that. What would you recommend for, for a young lady who's having these irregular periods and having pain in her teenage years? Yeah, that's a great question. I see a lot of young girls uh, for what their moms call safe consultation. So they know that I'm not going to prescribe artificial contraception uh, because I'm a Catholic doctor. Uh, <laughs> for, for other doctors listening out there, that's what we Catholic doctors do or don't do. Um, and so we're going to try to find out what's wrong, if anything is wrong. Now, with an adolescent and menses, it can be tough to figure out if something's actually wrong. Very often, those early menstrual periods are irregular. They don't come on 28 days. They aren't neat and tidy, which can be frustrating for the young woman. Uh, but that is a natural cycle. What would be considered a normal range of lengths within one individual person between periods? Yeah, well, for the adolescent or the mature woman, it's different. So, so adolescent, adolescent periods are often very irregular. There really isn't an abnormal for the most part. Okay. But as the woman matures or as her pituitary axis matures, it's going to be much more commonly between 26 and 35 days. Okay. That's pretty common for the population. So if you're outside of that, is that when someone should come see you? It's worthy, it's worthy of asking some questions when it gets longer or shorter okay. than that. But in, in the adolescent, they may be long. They may be irregular. They may be painful um, because a lot of prostaglandins are released when the menstrual tissue dies and it sheds from the, mens from the uterus. And prostaglandins, as we know, cause pain. So medications that help prostaglandins like nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory medicines, Motrin, Advil, Naproxen, all of those can be really helpful. Um, figuring out if the pain is normal or is it what we would call pathological, meaning something is wrong, that's a tough one. It can be really, it can be hard to do. And much like we talk about other symptoms in medicine, it depends if it's interfering with life. So when I see a young girl like that, maybe she's missing two to three days of school every month or so because her period's so bad, or she's skipping soccer class uh, or soccer practice, or maybe she wouldn't do well on an exam if it happened to land when her menstrual period was coming. Those are kind of objective indications. Maybe there's a little more going on here uh, than ought to be. The thing that I'm always thinking about is, does this young woman already have endometriosis? And that's why she's having so much pain. And we want to find that out and get on top of it early on. How, how often is it an appropriate treatment for these girls to be on birth control from other OB doctors? Yeah, I would say never. Uh, there's no place for synthetic hormones um, in, in an 11, 12-year-old's or any other woman's life. Uh, it doesn't do anything. It covers up maybe a serious problem like endometriosis. Um, and it gives her a regular period, which tends to make the young girl happy, which tends to make the mother happy, which tends to make the OBGYN happy. But yet all of those parties are being ill-served by covering up something that could be serious. Well, and you mentioned endometriosis. Can you explain that for people who don't know what it is? Yeah, it's a bizarre disease. If it went away, I think I'd retire because I wouldn't have much else to do. Um, endometriosis is where the lining of the uterus, or I should say tissue that resembles the lining of the uterus called the endometrium, is found outside of the uterus. Now, no one knows how it gets out there. There's a lot of theories, but that's all they are. It's been found in the brain, it's been found in the lungs. The most common place is in the pelvis. And it attaches and invades those tissues, but it behaves like it's still inside the uterus. And if you think about it, Ooh. that's how we would describe a cancer Ooh. that spreads. Um, and it behaves that way. It has many of the same characteristics. It generates its own blood supply, for example. But it's horribly inflammatory, and so it, it acts on the body's inflammatory pathways and causes pain and scarring and things. So does this things. mean every time a woman has a period that if inside your pelvis you have the same material, it's just being released from the lining of the pelvis and there's all this blood and dead cells inside there? Hence the, the intense pain oh, that can come goodness. with endometriosis. No wonder. Yeah, it can be very painful and scarring. Yes. The fallopian tubes can be destroyed easily. Because uh, sometimes this tissue stick. is on top of the fallopian yeah, The tube. bowels can be affected. The bladder can be affected. Oh. It's a terrible disease. And it doesn't get the publicity it deserves for the havoc that it causes in young women's lives. How common is that? It's hard to know because it's so underreported uh, and it's so often covered up in adolescence with birth control pills. Um, but, you know, I probably saw 10 or 12 women today wow. in my office with endometriosis. And that's a normal clinic day. It is. It's very, very common. What can, and how does it, um, 
interfere with pregnancy? How does it cause infertility? Yeah, it does it in two ways, one logical and one not so logical. One of the ways is a place the endometriosis can be found is in the fallopian tube. If that's the case, it can destroy the tube, and that means the sperm has no way to get to the end of the tube where fertilization happens. That's like a woman having her tubes tied. Sure. The other way that isn't so intuitive is even if it's spared the tube, but it's in the pelvis, it does something that's toxic to sperm and egg. Uh, anecdotally, I see this every day where a woman has had a decade of infertility. I operate on her and find one little spot. I take that out. She gets pregnant. Wow. Uh, there's some old studies where you could extract the fluid from the pelvis of women who have endometriosis, yes. put it in the abdomen of rabbits. The rabbits don't get pregnant anymore. Wow. It's thought to involve the interleukin system and macrophage activation factor. He loves uh, to say words like this, by the way. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> um, but uh, it's complicated, but it causes infertility and pain uh, and really destroys uh, women uh, and couples' lives. So if people are having pain that's out of you know, proportion to what is normal, is there anything you can give them besides the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs? Yeah, there are other medications uh, and supplements sometimes. Magnesium is pretty famous for helping. Uh, and there's a lot of naturopathic things that, uh, that women can try to help with the natural discomfort of menses. Uh, but it's when it stops being that and becomes much more disruptive that I usually get involved and start looking for things that are pathological. The number one suspect is always endometriosis. And how do you treat that? Yeah, you know, uh, I'm sure our listeners will remember, maybe two years ago, we had Dr. Patrick Jung, yes. uh, who's a phenomenal OBGYN that's published a great deal on endometriosis. And he points out that it's a surgical disease. Mm-hmm. It has to be treated like a cancer. Just like you cut cancer off of people's skin, it has to be cut out of wherever it is. That gives the woman her best shot at long-term cure. Is that your most common procedure? It probably is. Definitely one of the top two. Okay. Uh, And how successful is it? Yeah, it's hard to know, uh, as we talked about, again, with with Patrick, uh, because we often do multiple things at a surgery. We work on the tubes, we work on the endometriosis, and we don't know who to give the credit uh, for the pregnancy. But we get excellent response rates in terms of pain, uh, and we get really excellent pregnancy rates overall using the method and the philosophy of Creighton and NAPRO technology. Now, would you say that those who are not proponents of NAPRO technology do as much endometriosis surgery as you guys do? You know, it's tricky. I bet I know there's a lot of analogies in both of your specialties, but uh, if, if you don't love endometriosis, it would probably be best to just leave it alone. Okay. <laughs> right? You don't, want, uh, you don't want casual dermatologists cutting cancers off people's right. noses. That's what you do, and endometriosis is what somebody like me does. And it really needs to be treated seriously. It's a lot of work. You have to love it. And you've got to be willing to do battle with it because that's really what it is. And you have to be really gentle when you do it. So you have to be painstakingly meticulous and slow. Yeah, there's a lot of microsurgical techniques. Certainly the da Vinci robotic technology has made our ability to treat endometriosis successfully much, much better in the last 7 to 10 years. Um, But it has to be treated surgically and properly. Well, and, and one thing that's kind of a pet peeve of mine after I got to round with you as a student, Chris, <laughs> was the difference in surgical techniques um, if you take all different OB guys versus somebody who loves endometriosis and went for the extra NAPRO technology training. Yeah, it is completely different. I mean, it's a, it's a discipline. It's a philosophy. It takes a lot to resect endometriosis. I grew up in the South where we had fire ants. And anybody that, that has lived there knows if you kick a fire ant hill over, it's back the next day. Often with a vengeance, it's back. Uh, Endometriosis is much like that. If you burn it or cauterize it or the fancy medical term is full-graded, it just comes back and often with a vengeance. It's got to be cut out full thickness or we call it completely excised. Let's move on to vital signs. Mm. The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology in 2015 said that a menstrual history should be considered a vital sign to improve early identification of potential health concerns. What do you think about that, Chris? I, I, I would tend to agree. It's one of the very few things I ever agree <laughs> with the American College of OBGYN on. In fact, it may be the only one recently. Um, but in a reproductive age woman, so from adolescence to premenopause, um, it really can be a nice window 
into her entire hormonal uh, neuroendocrine system because it takes the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland. The thyroid gland plays a role. Um, the adrenal glands play a role. There's so much that goes into the menstrual cycle. Let's face it, male physiology is just not that interesting. Um, <laughs> women's physiology, Sad on the other true. hand, it's beautiful <laughs> and it's fascinating. But if she's having regular periods, we get to check a lot of things off uh, our differential diagnosis because we know of all the things that have to be working properly to have regular menstrual periods. So in other words, we would recommend to our listeners that if they have young daughters, that their family physician or pediatrician should be doing a menstrual history regularly. And if something's abnormal, not treating it with oral contraceptives. Absolutely. Don't put a Band-Aid on that. Get it checked out. Well, and I'm excited to, to link that maybe to our next segment. Which we'll about. do right after our next break. And we'll be back. And Andrew has a question on the tip of his tongue here on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with Dr. Doctor, talking to Dr. Chris Stroud today about the woman's cycle. And we've gone through a lot of good stuff. But Chris, thinking of the cycle as a vital sign, mm. um, getting into especially things that a lot of our listeners care about, fertility awareness or NFP. What's, what's the preferred terminology on that? I'd have to say yes. You know, they're, they're both <laughs> fine. Um, for, fertility awareness, at least in my experience, I've seen referenced uh, in some of literature from uh, the CDC and others where they'll loop all, you know, uh, group, I should say, all forms of um, natural means to prevent pregnancy. I'm searching for those words. And sure. they'll call that category fertility awareness methods. The, the idea being in all of the methods via one methodology or another, a woman can be taught to know when she's fertile and then to use that information uh, in a way that's based on she and her husband's goals. So if, if a woman knows that today she is fertile and she and her husband want to be pregnant, they could use today as a day of intimacy. If it's not their desire to be pregnant, then they would not use today as a day of intimacy. So knowing the, the fertile days and using them in a way that's consistent with their goals, that would be called a fertility awareness method of planning one's family. Well, that, that's interesting how you bring up them, lumping them together, because that gives me some insight into some of the statistics we read. Oh, that, they're horrible. Yeah, they don't make sense. Yeah, so they'll say fertility awareness methods, the pregnancy rates for couples using those are you know, 20 to 30 percent. So, of course, they're link, they're uh, grouping together someone that's maybe an instructor in the Couples to Couples League or maybe they're a fertility care practitioner in the Creighton Method. They're, they're grouping them and their success rates with uh, a 19-year-old who bought an app yeah. and she's using it on her phone. Or I've seen a, a bracelet, a 28-bead right. bracelet where you just <laughs> count them off. Oh. Hardly oh. fair to make that comparison. <laughs> yes. I don't think I'd recommend that. Since we are all lovers of statistics in the Creighton research, it will show that it's 99% effective at avoiding pregnancy in couples uh, that are using it. And it may surprise listeners, that's about 10 times better than the birth control pill. So incredible? I shouldn't say 10 times, 10% better. Uh, it's about 90% effective oral contraceptives are. So a 10% pregnancy rate in couples using oral contraceptives, far less than that in couples that are using. And when they say 90%, that means in 100 years of fertility, 10 out of 100 years will result in pregnancy. Yeah, that's an interesting way to say it, but that's actually, that's, that's correct. So 10% of the time, a pregnancy is going to occur with a woman using birth control pills. You don't hear that on CNN, uh, but that's what the CDC says. That's not my opinion. Well, and it's interesting to me, since we're talking about statistics, of the barrier methods. You're probably familiar with those. Right. Thinking that there's only five days a month people are fertile. You know, and those numbers are so abysmal when you even give them credit for most of the month being infertile. It's funny, and particularly in the Creighton method, when we're, we have nervous couples, uh, they're nervous about using it, we try hard to convince them, don't use condoms as a backup. Because that means they're going to be using fertile days. Yeah. And we know that condoms fail 10 to 20% of the time. Yeah. So if they're intimate on a fertile day... They didn't. The method didn't fail them. They failed the method. Yeah, uh, and it's important for for them to understand that. And not that a good Catholic would ever recommend using a condom as Precisely. a backup. Precisely. Yes. No. That, that's not something we promote at all. And it's interesting because you get to work with a lot of non-Catholic people who are doing this just for the health benefits and 
so much science has come out in support of fertility awareness methods. Oh, it is. It's it's an excellent method for a couple to plan their family in a way that's consistent with their goals uh, and their values. I mean, it's funny. We talk so much about people that are worried about hormones in their chicken while not not, <laughs> not, not, not thinking about the hormones they're, they're filling their bodies with in the name of so-called family planning. Gee whiz. But that's the beauty of natural family planning is it lets a couple naturally manage if they're if they choose to be pregnant if they choose not to be pregnant so for the husbands who are number got numbers guys mm. how many days a month average does this mean if you have a reason serious reason to not be getting pregnant you'll have to abstain from relations yeah it varies but around five to six days a month you would be abstaining and that's um, all with the with the methods yeah that's right uh, particularly in the Creighton method and some of the other methods that are very very precise you can depending on the nature uh, of the method, a couple can get it down to only avoiding five or six times a month. Uh, way back in the previous lifetime, I was uh, part half of a teaching couple for one of the methods. Yeah. And we always were taught that, well, sperm can live up to seven days and the egg can live up to 48 hours. So you've got seven days before, like three days. So it was at least 10 or 12 days. Yeah, you can get more precise than that with the f- with with narrowing wow. down the fertility window. Things have changed. But I think the funny thing is, and you know, some of our listeners may chuckle at this, but um, as three old married men at the table here, <laughs> I'll bet we could come to a consensus that most married couples abstain more than five to six days a month, whether they're using an FBA. <laughs> uh, I, I was going to try and point that out tenderly that uh, I don't know how many people would that cramp their style too much. Right. The difference is Hollywood tells listeners that married couples are having sex in elevators, uh, and the reality is they're not. <laughs> NFP, they just have to pick the days they choose to use for intimate days based on their goals. Yeah. Isn't that great? And and there's several different ways of doing fertility awareness, right? Oh, absolutely. There's the Marquette method. There's the, uh, the Billings method, the Symptothermic method, the Creighton method. They're all effective. They're all very good. They all have strengths that uh, will will work better for certain types of women with certain types of, uh, of cycles. But they are all very effective when used And what about properly. urine tests for hormone levels? Do they have a place in fertility awareness? Yeah, there's, you know, ovulation predictor kits. So remember uh, earlier in the show, we talked about the LH surge or yes. the luteinizing hormone. It can be detected in the urine. And when that is, the hormone level is so high that it can be detected in the urine, that means that the signal for ovulation has been sent. Now, we can't really say that that documents ovulation because we just know the signal has been sent. We don't know when the woman actually responds. But until that signal has been sent, she hasn't ovulated. And then after the signal has been sent, after a certain amount of time goes by, we know that she's ovulated and that's passed. So either the the cervical mucus dries up, the temperature goes up, those can be used as objective signs that ovulation has passed. Exactly. To a very, very high degree of accuracy and certainty. So the LH surge, that's what we were missing back in the old days <laughs> that, that, that we didn't know about to, to make it more predictive. So what, what do you wish more people knew about fertility awareness or NFP that they don't know? Yeah, I wish, I wish more people knew how beautiful and pro-couple it is, how sort of life-affirming, woman-affirming, uh, couple strengthening it is. You know, if you ask a husband at talks when I travel around, what are your what are your wife's periods like? Most of them stare at their feet. <laughs> uh, but if you ask a husband in an NFP marriage yeah. what his wife's menstrual cycles are like, he'll tell you. He'll say, oh, she's on a 28-day cycle, usually has five to seven days of bleeding. The first two are moderate. The last two are, are very light. He knows because they have to talk, about, talk it. about it. They have to talk about that. And they have to have a nightly or daily or hourly discussion about their goals as a couple when it comes to pregnancy. Contracepting couples never talk about that. Why should they? Right. Uh, there's no consequence to their intimacy. Uh, NFP couples have to talk about that, and that's, that's marriage strengthening. And it's beautiful that there is consequence to intimacy. Yeah, there is nothing to which there is no consequence, exactly. uh, including intimacy. So. This segues nicely into what are the best things a husband can do to support his wife as they together practice NFP? Well, the the emphasis is on together. A woman doesn't use NFP. A couple does. 
Uh, and so the couple is going to have to agree that they're going to abstain sometimes. Uh, and sometimes that can make the desire to be intimate even greater. Uh, the cookie jar syndrome, you might say. <laughs> um, but they have to do that together. And that, that's actually really good uh, yes. for their marriage. Uh, any of us Catholics know that when you make it through Lent, whatever you gave up is better uh, after, after Lent. Lent. Now, now, Chris, really— isn't NFP just Catholic birth control? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and, and that's usually the first one I get when I speak at RCA classes and things. But it isn't. Uh, natural family planning is not contraception. And, and that's a take-home for our listeners. To contracept is to prevent conception. NFP doesn't prevent conception at all. The couple uh, isn't intimate when conception is possible. Therefore, it isn't contraception. It's periodic abstinence. Yes. Um, a contracepting couple says, in so many words, I want what I want, I want it when I want it, and I want there to be no consequences. The NFP couple is saying, I want what I want, but I don't want pregnancy, so I'm going to abstain from what I want today. That's not contraception, and it's not preventing sperm and egg from meeting. So if God shows up in that relationship, fertilization can still happen. Uh, and the contracepting couple, they're saying to God, don't show up. There's no place for you here. Because well, and one of the things that I, I've talked to folks about a lot, and I know a lot of folks struggle with from a spiritual standpoint, is trying not to drift into a so-called contraceptive mentality. Mm. And uh, Tom, Tom correctly said, I think from the catechism, serious reasons for abstaining from pregnancy. Right. But one of the nice things about NFP is that you have to talk about it every day, every time. You, you know, you have to be on the same page. H how do you counsel couples how to stay out of that mentality? Yeah, it, it's important because you know the church teaches that it's okay not to be pregnant now, maybe not to be pregnant ever. Um, if you do that for moral reasons. Now, if you're doing that because you think, wow, if, if we only had one child, we could get a bigger lake house, um, that's a problem, right? That's using NFP with a contraceptive mentality. Or just a selfish mentality. Exactly, w which maybe they're the same, I would yeah. argue. Um, but if, if you have a child now and you, you want a space until the next child, or maybe you have a serious medical reason that says you should never be pregnant again. I have a few patients that currently have breast cancer. Uh, I have a patient who comes to mind who has terrible rheumatoid arthritis and is on an entire chest of medications, most of which cause birth defects. She should not be pregnant now, but she doesn't need to use an immoral method like an IUD or condoms or oral contraceptives to achieve that goal. She can use NFP and be very confident about it, and she does. Chris, um you know, where should a woman start to learn about NFP if she doesn't know anything about it? Because there's so many different options. Yeah, there are, and and that's a good thing. Uh, but, you know, they can go to, to websites, uh, the Couples to Couples League International website, uh, the Creighton Fertility Model uh, website. Um, those are great places to start. The American Academy of Fertility Care Practitioners is a great a great resource for couples. Um, in, in most parishes, there's someone that's dedicated to answering questions and helping young couples, in particular as they prepare for marriage, um, to take these things on. But finding the right method takes a little bit of work, but it's work that's worthwhile and, and the outcome is excellent. You know, Chris, as we're wrapping up this quarter of the show, I wondered if you could give us a couple myth-busting things regarding <laughs> NFP. I'm sure you've heard them all as you, as you in, the, in the past, even prescribed birth control but made the transition yeah. to full-time NFP. What are the biggest myths that you get to bust? Yeah, you know, there, there's, a, uh, there's an anti-myth, you might say, that's true, and that is NFP couples tend to be intimate more often than contracepting couples do. Uh, and that's actually been published. <laughs> and that's something that usually gets people's attention uh, at a talk. Um, that, that's a big one. The, the other one is that you can't use NFP if you have irregular cycles. Absolutely not true. Not true at all. Uh, some NFP methods are better than others for women who have chronically irregular cycles, but those women can use NFP just as well and just as effectively. Now, as a caveat, as we talked about the menstrual cycle as a vital sign, one needs to ask, why does she have an irregular cycle? Maybe she's got hypothyroidism. Maybe she's got something else going on that if we treated, she wouldn't have irregular cycles. Uh, but even if she does have 
normal yet irregular cycles. She can use NFP and use it with confidence and effectiveness. So even with a, a longer cycle than expected or shorter, there's still the same signs that a woman is becoming fertile and a sign that she no longer has an egg present. That's exactly correct. So that's why the length of the cycle doesn't matter. And the most common sign is the cervical mucus. That's Tell right. us a little bit about cervical mucus and spin bar kite. <laughs> <laughs> that should have been a trivia question. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to make note of this. Yes. Um, you know, as the estrogen level rises, as that follicle is growing the way that we talked about it earlier, uh, once the estrogen level reaches a critical concentration in the blood, special glands in the cervix start releasing a special form of fertile mucus. And that mucus is, is specifically designed by our creator to make it easy for sperm to swim through. And then as soon as ovulation happens, progesterone goes up from that corpus luteum that yep. we talked about. Progesterone causes a different set of glands in the cervix to release their kind of mucus. And that mucus is not fertile mucus, and sperm cannot swim through it. So the cervix and cervical mucus is really a biological valve that opens ever so quickly and slams shut again. Ah. So pregnancy can only happen in that brief moment when that valve is open. For, for people who have access to the internet, I'd encourage you to Google the microscopic images of those. It's fascinating. It's, it, you couldn't make this stuff up. You've got super <laughs> highways and you've got a rock wall. <laughs> and anybody who thinks that, you know, maybe an infertile mucus, it could still work, you know, and that causes so many people's infertility. But yeah. that picture is amazing. I'd encourage you to look it up. I think one of the most amazing things that I get to encounter on a daily basis with NFP and couples is I'll see uh, often a young couple and they are very serious about avoiding pregnancy. So they take NFP passionately and they want to they want to master it. And not it's very common for not much time to go by before their motivation has changed and now they want to be pregnant or they're open to pregnancy. And I don't think it's a coincidence. I think the more you study the menstrual cycle and the more you study that fertility window, like you said about the mucus, you can help but develop a sense that our God created this, and it is spectacular. And I think in many, many couples, it it changes their mind. They decide, wow, we, we really do want to have a baby. We just thought that we didn't because the world told us that we didn't. Uh, it's spectacular. Okay, Chris, that German word spinbarkeit, what is that with, mu <laughs> with the mucus? It, it, it describes how stretchy or yes. stretchable or the stretchability index, you might call it. And that's fertile mucus, right? It is. The, the more fertile mucus looks like egg whites. Uh, and between the woman's fingers, she can stretch it out longer than an inch and an inch and a half in length before it breaks. Um, and we've learned through many decades of research, that's the fertile mucus. When it's clear, when it's stretchable, and if rubbed between your thumb and index finger, it feels like a lubricant. It's slick. Because it is. Because it is. So how many days a month might that be there? Not very many. In most menstrual cycles, that sign is only there a couple of days. Okay. And what we know from research is the last day that that sign is there, in the Creighton world, we call that the peak day, Yes. is the statistical marker of the middle of a five-day window. So the last day that the woman noted that kind of mucus is called the peak day. Two days before peak, peak, and two days after, 99% of ovulations happen right in that window. So that allows the couple to use that window to either watch a movie or make a baby. And then um, temperature. This is an important signal of what? Yeah, temperature is another sign that ovulation has occurred. Because remember I said the money is in the progesterone? Progesterone is thermogenic. If I give you a shot of progesterone, your basal, Please don't. Your, <laughs> your basal body temperature will rise because it's thermogenic. So a woman can track her basal body temperature, that is her basic temperature on a daily basis before fluctuations happen. And suddenly after ovulation, it begins to rise because of the rising progesterone. And that's usually at the same time in the morning which she would wake up and take her temperature. Yeah, basal body temperatures are, <clears throat> are usually checked the same time every morning before the woman even gets out of bed. Well, let's take a break here before the last quarter. We'll have the answer to the trivia question and some bonus questions for our in-house guest, Chris Stroud, here on Dr. Doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not. 
and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the menstrually-related trivia question. Yeah, so... What is this word that rhymes with menopause that has been used to describe the non-stark physical change that occur in a men's bodies with the slowdown in hormone production? And Chris has heard of this term. I hadn't heard of it before. It's not it, menopause. No. <laughs> no, it sounds like, yeah, we already stole the word menopause. It's actually andropause. <laughs> like androgens is a generic catch-all term for male hormones. Um, and... Uh, you know, is it a thing? Well, it's tricky. Remember, we had a guest not too long ago yes. who was Craig talking Stump. about yeah the whole endocrinology of yes. of androgens and male hormones and testosterone and you know I think he did a great job of sort of explaining eh, this is tricky stuff. It's hard to understand. Um, we some, probably need more data, but we know that androgen levels decline with age. Right, and that's natural and slow. And it's a stark difference from menopause, which is like a woman falling off a cliff with well, the changes in hormones. And it's it's directly related to fertility in a woman, and it has nothing to do with a man's exactly. fertility. Yeah. Exactly. So to try to equate something in the man like menopause, it's just not there. Now, it is possible, I think, that we could be so in tune to uh, the women to whom we're married that if they experienced s- changes, we would sympathetically experience similar changes perhaps. But that's a bit of a stretch. Those old, <laughs> uh, But that would be in the brain with mirror neurons and other things <laughs> going on, not with our hormones. But I know that Andrew is just dying to ask Chris something. Yeah, I, I thought as we were wrapping up the show, maybe we have a couple potpourri of questions. And, and one of them that I get from folks a lot are what I call uh, method mixers. Uh, where they take their favorite part of all the different types of NFP and maybe they use an app, uh, even a secular app, mm. to record their symptoms. Do you have any special advice for these folks or do the statistics about efficacy hold when they're kind of do-it-yourself NFP? Yeah, I think you have to be really careful. Uh, I know especially in the Creighton method, they take a pretty obsessive-compulsive approach to not wanting you to mix up the method because if a couple becomes pregnant and their stated goal was not to become pregnant, they don't want a couple running around saying, oh, I tried that and we got pregnant. That's not fair. So I think you have to be cautious about method mixing. The methods are all good, but mixing them more is not necessarily better. Um, The apps are uh, a problem, (laughs) right? Most of the apps uh, are based on the uh, the myth that a woman has a 28-day cycle and she ovulates on day 14. You're kidding. And we know that's 10% or less of, oh my uh, of women. So This sounds like th- really the rhythm method in an app? It is. How it, many not people have that? come in with an app that said, I was supposed to ovulate yesterday? I see that every day. <laughs> Doctor, oh, my goodness. Yeah, there's no reason for me to check the progesterone level because I know I've ovulated. My app says so. Uh, now, I don't want to confuse that app with apps that are available through Couples to Couples League, through the Creighton uh, Fertility Model. Those are excellent app versions of their paper-based systems. Okay, good. That's completely different. So there are good apps. There really and bad are. Apps. Uh, that's completely different. But uh, mixing and matching your favorite parts of uh, uh, sort of the cornucopia, as you say, that's not a good idea. Be careful. Well, one of the myths I wanted to check on, and maybe it's a truth, is when women live together, do they really start to cycle together? I think our listeners that are female would say they've experienced that. It's not at all uncommon. You can see this in college dorm rooms. Uh, it's very common that they'll begin uh, to cycle in, in a pretty similar way. And this is because? Uh, that's beyond me. Uh, we'll have to ask somebody much smarter that understands the design. Well, here's another question, and that is, can men sense through these mythical things called pheromones that there's something different about a woman at different parts of her cycle? Well, I could be wrong, but I think uh, most of our wives would say that we're incapable of sensing anything. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I guess that's arguable. Um, 
What yeah. did you say, dear? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting. People, it, when you look at the cycle and you think the probability of becoming pregnant should be close to zero. How could accidental pregnancy ever occur? Because it's such a brief window of time. And people have theorized that maybe women secrete pheromones that make men more interested during their fertile times and vice versa. The reality is nobody's ever been able to answer that question. It's fascinating. And, and maybe it's good that we can't answer it. Some questions deserve not to be answered. Well, and there's a great show that we recorded some time ago yes. where we talked about the t-shirt study and yes. those, those uh, gorillas or yes. what have you um, with an excellent doctor down from Dallas. And, and Bill Stiggle. I'd, I'd point listeners back to that <laughs> if they want to learn more about pheromones. Very interesting. That is one of our top 10 downloaded episodes, by the way. I, I enjoyed that one a lot. Yeah, it was fun. I wonder if he has any other good stories like that. You know, Chris, another question that I, I would assume you get a lot is, you know, since Catholics are so pro-life and so pro-fertility, uh, go forth and multiply. What about times when there's medical indications that would result in sterilization, mm. um, such as a hysterectomy? Is that something? Th what does the church teach on that? Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, you know, now St. Pope Paul VI wrote beautifully in Humana Vitae, uh, as only he could, that it's perfectly appropriate to treat a diseased condition that uh, has the undesired consequence of rendering the man or the woman infertile if that's necessary to treat the disease. So a great example, as you referenced, would be maybe endometrial cancer, where the uterus needs to be taken out, or cervical cancer, where a hysterectomy needs to be performed, or maybe a man has testicular cancer, and one or both of the testes needs to be removed. The goal was not to sterilize the person. Now, they are rendered infertile by the treatment, but that wasn't the goal. The goal is to treat a diseased organ. That's perfectly appropriate. I just have to chuckle. Uh, it's often said about me and many Catholic gynecologists, oh, yeah, they're very nice, but they won't do a hysterectomy if you need it because they're Catholic. Um, that just represents a misunderstanding of, of church teaching. And sadly. really, those are applications of the principle of double effect. They are. Where it's always trying to do what is right in any circumstance. Well, exactly. thank you for one last myth busted, Chris. And thank you for our listeners for being with us on another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. And be sure to rate and review our show to help new listeners to find us. And please send us questions or tell us how something you heard on the show changed your life. We want to share your good news with our listeners. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And, and Dr. I'm Dr. Andrew Mullally. <laughs> I'm Dr. Chris Straub. <laughs> Signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.